0: Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This show is produced by Ben Murray. For today's episode, we got to catch up with Mike Irwin. Mike is a U.S. Army intelligence officer. He's the founder of Team Red, White & Blue, America's leading health and wellness community for veterans. He's also an author of two books, Lead Yourself First and Leadership Is a Relationship. Mike's also an educator. He founded the Positivity Project and co-founded Father Vincent Cappadano High School. I actually lose track of what he founded versus co-founded. We talk about that, so apologies where credit is due more. We sat down with Mike at his homestead in rural North Carolina. So we
1: got uh, goats, uh, pigs, uh, beef cattle, um, ducks, And um, then we've got our great Pyrenees dogs. we got some barn cats. A couple times a year we do meat birds. And then we've got bees and a vegetable garden and a greenhouse and an orchard. So, yeah, there's just a lot of different, kind of like my life, like there's a lot going on. We hope you enjoy our conversation.
0: Thanks for listening. When you, when you prep a podcast, you just go listen to the other shows that someone's been on. And you said you've been on like a thousand podcasts and they're all centered on, you know, team red, white, and blue. Yeah. So I could easily kind of walk in here and be like, Oh, I'm talking to the team red, white, and blue guy. Yeah. But then when I talk to Nate, he's like, Oh, well, he's got a couple books. Oh, well, he started a school. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, there's (laughs) all this other stuff too. So, you know, how do you, I guess, how do you describe yourself to people now? Yeah. In
1: yeah, a couple I mean, sentences. Yeah, I mean, a couple sentences. Yeah. I guess it's hard you know, to do it because, like, I'm so interested in so many things, but, you know, really it's like um, I could pull up my, like, I got it perfectly framed in, like, my first two sentence bio, but, you know, i um, have kind of like trying to draft, you know, about myself. But yeah, I really think about, like, m- I strive to help, um, people like all people being from young kids starting with, you know, the positivity product for father Capodanno high school through veterans to be more resilient, to build stronger relationships and to like, like live like a life that is impactful. Yeah. And, um, you know, I forgot the exact way I would say it, but like, the, you know, basically just like, you know, I don't want to say the cliche to like, to become your best self. Right. But like the idea of like helping people live like meaningful lives that they'll look back on, like, with pride right when they're on their deathbed you know because i just think so many people go through the motions in life you know and you know um you know that's one theme and then the other big theme is just really around you know this whole balance between like self-reliance and relationships you know i'm fascinated by this like out here on the farm like you know because i never lived on a farm like i never lived on land i was always a suburbs guy you know uh you know but um it's been fascinating to see like you know just like know the way the world used to work is everyone had to be like self-reliant enough to take care of their own shit you know um but then you were a community and it was a very strong community without too long like my cows got out like a week and a half ago one of them got hit by a car and killed it was a disaster (laughs) but um you know but we got two of them back but like the community was like out like 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 we're trying to like and they were ended up they up squirting like four miles away right you know but like you see how people like how they used to do it they would come together like you know, and like, hey, like, jump in my truck. We'll go try to, like, cut them off, you know, like this and that. You know, so just that whole mindset of, like, that balance between self-reliance and resilience. Yeah. I'm sorry, self-reliance in relationships is fascinating to me because, I mean, yeah, I'm sure you obviously know by talking to Nate a lot, right? I mean, like, I'm not, a, I'm not a prepper by any stretch, right? But, like, I do think the world's moving in this direction where, like, the big machine, right, you work for it. Like, I'm part of it. Like, we're all kind of a part of it. Yeah. Um, and we're all tethered to it. And I think there's this big question like emerging, like, like of how tethered do you remain to it, right? As the machine keeps getting bigger and trying to dictate more and more, you know? Um, and so the reality is like, if you need the system for your gas, well, <laughs> the gas goes down because the pipeline, you know, or whatever, then eh, you don't have gas. Um, if you need it for your food and you want to, you know, you're going to pay $35 a pound for a beef, right? For a steak, like that's what you got to pay. You know, or not eating steak, you know? So it's just that whole conversation around like the world's changing. Like it's was changing rapidly past two years, accelerated it. So uh, again, I can go and I can, I can go philosophical. Like if you want to talk about that kind of stuff, (laughs) or I can talk hard, like hard fact, like transition stuff, you know, father Cappadano, right. That. Devin Capps is like my co-founder, if you know who Capps is. Yeah. Um, so like him, and then Doug Karen um, is our history teacher, <laughs> you know, so. No like, better history teacher. Unbelievable. The yeah. guy's the guy's incredible. And he does more than that. But like, you know, but like, it's fascinating to have this like little small school that's like just thinking differently about things. So I'm trying to, as much as possible, bring like a lens of, I don't want to say nonconformity, but just thinking. And I don't want to say thinking outside the box, but trying to think differently about like where things are headed yeah um so anyways i'll stop there but like you know maybe that couple of those things you want to pull at or whatever again i can go any direction you want so yeah i mean well like we just let it run and then i do
0: like a content edit and then ben helps me out on the production yeah so i mean we'll just pick up from here but you know you said you grew up in the suburbs syracuse yeah i think yep syracuse new york and uh uh, you know, coming out here today, I, I don't exactly know what a homestead is, yeah. but this might be it. Yeah. I think I had to use my pace count to get yeah. here. Yeah. So, drove down dirt path, American flag, yeah. cross, yeah. <laughs> bunch of animals. Yes. I, I mean, how is this different from how you grew up? And and you know, how's it better? And what made you make the decision to just start living like this? You yeah. know, with
1: the with the more self sustaining out here. So I'd start by saying, so no, this is definitely very different than anything that I grew up on. You know, I grew, up, I grew up in Syracuse, New York, and then I was in the Army, so I moved around. I was in basically one town, one place for a year, maybe two years uh, in between deployments, but um, very different. You know, I think that, you know, as I think about this notion of uh, a homestead, like I honestly didn't even know really what it was at first, but having some of the discussions with my wife, we used to live in the village of Pinehurst. The, they used to describe it as the quaint village of Pinehurst, right? Where it's just so quiet and the street, everything is just pristine. It's like um, the Hamptons it, of uh, Middle it, North Carolina. It just feels just like it, it feels like wow, this place is really polished, you know? Because it's a lot of people who are retired and people who've been successful in their lives. And when I transitioned out of the army, that's where we moved to because you know I was stationed here at Fort Bragg. I was the intelligence officer for First Battalion, Third Special Forces Group from 06 to 09. Um, we loved it here, and so we moved back, but we didn't have any kids at the time. And uh, between then, and when we moved out, we got, you know, we had four kids and was really just thinking about, wow, like, this is really awesome, but we're raising our kids. And like, is this going to prepare them for the world? At the same time, the world is feeling more and more volatile and just more and more tectonic plates shifting, right? With our politics and media and all these kinds, and this is even Mm pre-COVID. And so we started to say, like, I wonder if we should look at, you know, maybe trying, you know, to get out uh, on some land. And so, yeah again, like lots of times, timing was very good. This is about a year before COVID, um, and we found this piece of land, and we're like, wow. But it was overgrown. it uh, was There was no farming or agricultural here. It was just a a, a guy had built a house here on 30 acres because he wanted privacy and quiet. And so there was nothing here tied to farming at all. So he just, like, had this big insulation of nothing yes that's it and he's a doctor and i you know i don't know the logic behind why he did that but uh, we came out here and so like we had to start thinking through about how to transform it and all that and so i mean i spent hour i mean days you know in aggregate of like clearing vines and thickets by hand with like other people and you know started having things built like a chicken coop and a pigsty and a duck coop and in various things but um, bottom line is that, you know, it started out very much as like just a little bit of an idea of, hey, I wonder how this would be different when we were living in the village of Pinehurst to coming out here and I'm much like a light switch, like I'm on or off, right? And so when we got out here, it was like, well, this is this is us. This is our new identity. This is who we are. And so we were kind of really went all in and um, have just committed to learning more and oh boy, has there been failure? I mean, I could, this podcast is not long enough um, to kind of go through all the learning points and the failure, but it's been very humbling, but also very educational at the same time because there are so many things that we haven't known Hmm. and that we've learned along the way, unfortunately the hard way. But again, that's a huge lesson for life for our kids and and really just a great reminder for us as parents. How many types of animals do you have here? So we got uh, goats, uh, pigs, uh, beef cattle, um, ducks, and, um, then we've got our great Pyrenees dogs. We got some barn cats. And then we've got, we do a couple times a year, we do meat birds. So we do chickens. So we raise our own chickens. And then we also, um, do Thanksgiving turkeys. So we process and rate, you know, raise and process our own, um, meat birds. So okay. yeah, up to seven or eight, I guess, at a time. And then we've got bees and a vegetable garden and a greenhouse and an orchard. <laughs> So yeah, there's just a lot of different yeah. you know, kind of like my life, like there's a lot going on, but like none of it's too deep, right? It's very yeah. much distributed. So. Yeah, uh, Meatbirds is like a good band name. <laughs> <laughs> Meatbirds. Yeah, so they're technically <laughs> called Cornish crosses. Oh, so, man. but they just kind of call them Meatbirds because that's yeah. what they are. <laughs> that's what they're here for. Yes. Uh, okay. I mean,
0: you you said suburbs, so you know you're like slaughtering animals yeah. and, and, you know, selling them off or so, sell, sell them to your neighbors and
1: stuff. Or, so like we could go that route, but that's or, not, or it's just like all self-sustainment all here combination. So all I'd right. say hybrid of that. So like for, so Nate and other people come over here and they help out and your haul is you get five chickens to go home with you. Right. Okay. So, you know, so I, I order them, you know, feed them, raise them do all that get them ready got all the processing equipment and then we have a whole community of people you know a lot of people from the, the military special forces community come over here and you know, once or twice a year we work and we basically spend four to six hours um and then again for your time that you're here beyond the process that you get the experience with your kids right um, um you get that with your kids but then you also get to go home with five chickens and you know that hey like we helped you know to you know to make this happen Nice. It's like a bloody version yeah. of uh, apple picking. <laughs> exactly. I never <laughs> thought of it like that. But yes, that's great. <laughs> great family memories. <laughs> uh, I
0: see, like you got baseball stuff everywhere, mm-hmm. and, and you know, army, yep. army, navy stuff everywhere. Yep. So you you played baseball at West Point. What was baseball like growing up? And it was the decision to go to a service academy?
1: Yeah. So I I grew up. You know, about three and a half hours from West Point. Never really gave too much consideration to it. But, you know, loved playing baseball all the time. I'm a lefty, so I was a pitcher. Mm-hmm. I played first base a little bit in center field, but primarily pitched. Um, and, yeah, just the sport uh, was just very – for me, it was just a lot of fun because, like, I was able to, um, you know, travel, you know, around New York State. So we played, like, you know, some, some travel. But I also spent time – just like with people from all over the Syracuse area who didn't go to my school. So it was great from like a friendship and then like a relationship standpoint. Yeah. Played in the Empire Empire State games and like all these, you know, different things. Um, but when it came time to go to college, like my entire life I'd wanted to be a doctor. I was gonna be a doctor, I'm gonna be a doctor, I like, volunteered in hospitals. I, I did everything I possibly could, you know, to to get go that route. Why? Um, I don't know. Like I still can't to this day. I remember being when I was young, being like, I want to be a doctor. And I don't know if it was a seed that my parents planted in my brain, but my You know, my parents went to college. My mom was actually the first woman police officer on the Syracuse Police Department back in 74. Hmm. My dad was um, a sergeant on the police department. Um, And so they were like, hey, we want our kids, you know, to go to college. Um, And so they planted that seed. But, you know, I I don't really know, um, to be honest, like where the the doctor thing came from. But it it didn't end up buffing out um, Hmm. because, like, I did look at Johns Hopkins and Georgetown, like really, really good pre-med programs. I was getting recruited there. Because um, of baseball, because I was just good enough to play. Like you know, uh, Johns Hopkins was Division Three, so I would have been like, you know, definitely you know good to go there. But yeah. um, that helped me get into those programs. But then I'll never forget my mom. Like one day came home and said it, she must have got seen something like on like the fledgling internet of nineteen ninety five. You know, but like saw something about West Point. And said, "Hey, have you ever thought about West Point?" I was like, I mean, I've seen a couple of commercials before. I've seen like the football game, you know, the Army Navy game or something like that. So. She said, "I think we should go down and just drive and go see it for a day. if nothing else it 's part of a history you know history lesson yeah. and so I went down and saw it, and I spent literally three hours there and As I tell anyone and everyone who ever would even think about or consider you know going to a, a service academy, just go spend three hours. you will know either definitely not for me or i 'm definitely interested and and I walked away definitely interested and um, got recruited to play baseball there. Again, there's no scholarships because everyone's on scholarships. So, um, but I went there and yeah, it was, um, soon became like a place that I really, really wanted to go, you know, and, and all the other ones kind of just fell to the wayside. So I applied early decision there and, and got in and it's just kind of crazy how it's all shaped, like almost everything for the rest of my life, not just my own life, but my sister got married to one of my classmates. My brother ended up going there, Um, class of 2005 and my sister, my youngest sister married a 2009 grad. So like there's this whole, our whole family, which is me, my sisters, my brother, their spouses, 18 kids between us, right? Five, five, four, four. So all these, like all this ripple effect because of my decision to go to West Point that if I didn't go to West Point, yeah. So it's just, I just think about that very often in like the, the greater philosophy of life, how sometimes like one decision can have this massive cascading ripple. So, wow. I had, uh, the exact opposite, uh, uh, effect when I
0: went to Norwich, I visited as like a junior or senior in high school, mm-hmm. probably a junior. Uh, and I showed up and, yeah. you know, I was thinking like, wow, we're going to go hiking and yeah. snowshoeing <laughs> and, you know, yeah. running in yeah. the woods and obstacle course and all this kind of yeah. stuff. And, we did like marching around, yeah, and then there's, yeah. there's one kid who's like, "You're not in ROTC," and I'm like my school doesn't have ROTC. Yeah. He's like, "Oh well, you better learn to march really <laughs> quick." And I was like, "What is going hey, on here?" Yeah. I was Like, this is not no. yeah. my thing. Yeah. And uh, you know, and then I went to the recruiting yeah. station and was like, "You know, hey, sign me up, dude. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> give me a give me a gun." Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, uh, I guess Norwich was a closer drive for yeah. me. Yeah. How far was it for you? Uh, So I grew up in uh, like northern Massachusetts. So it was still like a three hour drive. But, you know, um, yeah. But do you think your siblings would have even considered if it weren't for you?
1: I mean, so it was different because of the timing, you know, because of 9-11. So 9-11 took place at the start of my senior year. My brother was actually, it was a really weird thing. My brother was a freshman. He was a plebe at West Point um, when nine 11 happened. And so he had already made the decision to go prior to, uh, prior to nine 11. But, um, I mean, I, I said that, Hey, if I went to Johns Hopkins or I went to Georgetown or whatever, I almost certainly would have dropped out and enlisted. Right. I wouldn't have finished my fourth year there and then gone on to med school. I mean, I would, I probably would have dropped out and enlisted. I mean, just the, the, the nation, the state of the nation at that time. So, I think that a lot of us would have found our way to service, you know, one way or another, but I don't know. It's it's an interesting question um, that we'll never know the answer to, but um, I don't think, certainly not the same route. They would not have gone the same route because my brother very much followed in my footsteps because of, like, what he saw, like, with my friends there, so. Yeah. First month of your senior year about
0: 9-11 happened? Yep. Yeah, exactly. First year into my, yeah, first month into the senior year.
1: Okay. Yeah. How did, how's your last year different from your oh, first boy. three years? Man, like things just got so much more serious as you can imagine, right? This is not surprising, but things got so much more serious. Um, you know, I was actually in a seminar with uh general retired Barry McCaffrey mm-hmm. and he was like, like sleeping like two or three hours a night cause he was going down to the city and talking on like shows. Right. And then coming back and he taught this seminar and I remember him saying like pretty much early on, being I mean, like, yeah, well, you're be, your, your class is definitely going to be going to war. And and we knew, generally speaking, pretty soon on about Afghanistan and the, and the Taliban. Um, but you know, he already kind of already forecasted, hey, there's most likely there's, there's going to be efforts like in the Middle East and regime change that's going to try to happen because of all the problems that, you know, festered because of, you know, uh, a lot of what had happened, you know, with I- Iraq, you know, and so. It was for us a big uh, eye-opening moment of, well, we spent the first three years here thinking the most dangerous place we might go will be Bosnia, right, yeah. or, or or South Korea, <laughs> yeah. and now it's like uh, we don't know what's uh, going on from here, and yeah. and so all all that happened really was that there's um, you know obviously a lot of patriotism, a lot of people being like, let's go, like can we graduate early, <laughs> you know that kind of nonsense talk, right, yeah. that, you know that happened maybe back in World War II you know, yeah. but no, we're not gonna graduate early, yeah. but. My recruiter yeah. convinced me to graduate high school and not yeah. get a GED, yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, totally, so like, that's the spirit of like, people are like, we need we need people, we need Patriots now. Um, but yeah, you know, we, when we graduated, you know, again, it was really that the culmination of that whole senior year, which is like everyone beating into our brain of like, get ready, you don't know what's coming, but our nation needs you, like, thank God, like you came forward, you know, to, to come to West Point, you are prepared, you are ready, and. Yeah. The reality is, uh, as we saw unfold over the next decade, is that, you know, from a conventional force standpoint, is that we were only partially ready. Right. And that we had uh, very much you know, the, the Krasnovian mindset and like the, the Hick, the high intensity conflict thing. Like we were pretty darn good at that. But as we learned, right, um, fighting from a counterinsurgency standpoint and all that was something that we had to get a lot better at. Um, but anyways, yeah, it was uh, it was a, it was definitely an intense senior year. Yeah, sometimes it's interesting
0: to think about how short World War II was in perspective, from what we're used to. Mm-hmm. Even like, I mean, the, like you know, the German campaign—it didn't start at D-Day, but yeah. it, you know, you like land at D-Day a year later, the war is over, and it's right. like definitively over. Yeah. But it, you know, going from 1941 to you know back invasion yeah. of Poland, even then, it's what right. like a six-year
1: span. Totally, so long. <laughs> Yeah. and w- and we just saw 20 years in Afghanistan. Yeah, it's wild. Like I mean, so much I think for a lot of people like, you know, you and I who have, you know, deployed and, and been a part of all this, like I think you know, some of it feels like, you know, because we're still middle age. I'm 42. I'm guessing I don't know, you're probably not uh, you know, 37. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say so you got five I got five years on you, but yeah. uh you know, but people who are I'd say like in that 35 to 50 window, you know, a lot of us I think are Yeah, just taking stock of like, you know, everything that transpired, you know, because when life is moving fast, it's moving fast and you're not really slowing down enough to really kind of process it all. And it's and it's just happening. Um, And yeah, like you're obviously like processing what happens to a certain extent, but um, it's only with time, right, right? That you, you know, that you start to really, I think, be able to look back with clarity. And this is not just on going to war or not. This is, you know, on life in general. And I think about, you know, just how. How crazy it is like that it started you know in two thousand for me like you know first time was 2004. Um, hey dad, yeah. you know, two thousand and four all right, thanks <laughs> all right <laughs> who's that what are <laughs> the animals a, a duck apparently we've got um uh, we've had a duck that's been missing for a while and we think that she's been she's gone broody and sitting on uh duck eggs so oh, um, i uh, <laughs> So yeah, th- my kids are all excited because they thought that they might be some ducklings. So okay, uh, I don't know how you want to edit that. <laughs> that's <laughs> so, okay. All right. So um, fourth wall action. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but I think that you know, just really looking looking back at all that's transpired, you know, I have a deeper sense of appreciation as I look at you know movies, you know, uh, like Band of Brothers and Saving Private Ryan, and you kind of look at you know veterans as they get older and. Looking back more and more fondly, you know, uh, with what they did and their and their service. But in this window of time right now, again, like it's moving fast in a different kind of way. Whether you got kids or not, like whether you're working, like you know, really, you know, in, in a fast-moving industry or not, like life is still kind of moving fast. But there gets to be a certain point, I think, when things slow down, you know, to the point where you can look back. Um, with just, again, a different degree of perspective that you just don't have at different chapters of your life. And again, you see lots of these, and I see some of them, some of them are like my friend's dads who are like 70 years old and like, they're going and doing their reunions with their like Vietnam, you know, you know, you know, platoon mates and it's like their best day of the year, you know? And, um, obviously living here in the Fort Bragg area, I still see lots of people who are currently serving people who have served, you know, for me, that's a really good thing. I love to be able to just see people, um, you know, yeah. who are continuing to serve, but yeah, it's definitely, um, like you go back to your initial point, you know, when you think back to like to the length of that, that's like two decades, right. That people were involved like in this, you know, with a crazy intense beginning and a wild chaotic finish. And then everything in between was just so up and down and roller coaster ride. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I was 16
0: on nine 11 wow. and, uh, you know, on the one hand I, th- I think about a kid who was 16 in 1941 or, you know, in 1963 <laughs> yeah. or whatever. And it's just, you know, generation generationally doesn't line up for you. But I also think like I joined the army after we had already been going to mm-hmm. war and served for 12 years, you know, been out for seven. And I still have friends who are like, yeah, you know, deploy in next month. <laughs> yeah. God to think about yeah. it in that, you know, totally. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, there's also the story about, or whatever stories about people serving with their kids, mm. or you know, now we're sending kids overseas who weren't born
1: when the Just, towers came down. Yeah, 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 crazy. One of them, yeah, Mike, um, Mike Sullivan. Um, he was uh, an AOB, a special forces company commander um, when I was the intelligence officer, and then he actually, all those years later, um, brought his his twins. He has twins. Uh, and his wife brought them up to visit West Point when I was teaching there in 2014. They ended up going there. So he's a Colonel now in the army and his kids are, you know, first lieutenants right now. Yeah. You know? And I mean, he would always use this hashtag, you know, family business, but it's like you come to have a realization. A lot of people who do come into the military do come from like a lineage and a family. And it's kind of what you go into. Yeah. Like a lot used to be a long time ago. Hey, like if, you know, your family's farmers, you're a farmer. <laughs> if you're, right. you know, in and, and whatever it is, like you kind of go into that family, small business. Well, many ways, like it's no small business. It's the opposite. right? It's a huge business. But you know, the military is very much like this generational thing. So I think about this a lot in terms of like, even my own kids, people say, ah, like, like my son who just, you know, walked in, he's 12, just turned 12. And he's my oldest. And I think about it a lot of like, and do I think my kids are gonna go into the military? Because I, I didn't come from like a general like a lineage of military service. My grandfather was D Day plus two. Yeah. Beyond that, like my, my parents, none of my uncles were in the military. Your parents were in public service. Yes. Totally. Yeah. And my grandfather my was one was a cop, one was a firefighter, so a lot of public service there. Yeah. But in terms of the military, there wasn't that that military lineage. And so I wonder, I, I tend to think about it a lot are my kids gonna carry that on? Do they want to carry it on? Um, there's just a lot to unpack there that um, we'll see how it goes. But I think that, you know, going back to your point about like the, the, you know, the lineage side of it, um, from a family, there is lots of families that have got, you know, like a dad or a mom, you know, kids like in-laws, like it's, 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 it's a family deal. Yeah. How
0: do you, how do you consider, you know, your service and its influence over your
1: kids as similar or different from over your siblings? Yeah, I think that, you know, because they're 2 to 12 in age, they still only have such an appreciation. And when I go into my Army Reserve assignment in the summer, like, they'll see me, like, pack my military uniform. I'm like, oh, yeah, Dad, you're uh, in the Reserves, right? You're in the military. They'll see some things hanging on my wall about my time. But, you know, I think it's – a couple of the other ones are just getting to the age where I can have, like, more meaningful conversations with them about it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's much less opaque than – for a, you know, a six year old be like, Dad, you were a soldier, what does that mean? Yeah, you know, right, like you ride on tanks right. and you know, wear boots. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, it's about as much. Yeah. yeah. So like there's just such you know, so little that they can process on that. But as they get older and better able to read and, and have a conversation, yeah. yeah, I absolutely look forward to those discussions of like what does it mean to serve and what does it mean to be in the military and why do we even have militaries, right? Like right. as we've seen in in the past year. Right, like you need militaries. It'd be great to not need militaries, but you need militaries, right? So, um, like the purpose that they serve—not just for national defense, but also really for the world. Yeah. So
0: you, you know, you talk about choosing to go to intelligence, serve in you know conventional, then go to special forces, do a few trips to Iraq and Afghanistan. Yep. Uh, I in my you know scouting you out on other podcasts i heard you say two things that were pretty interesting you said intelligence is predictive analytics and then you also said intelligence
1: is not a leadership branch Mm -hmm. totally yeah yeah Chat about that so yeah really interesting um you know perspective because it's um it's very very real right i'm not saying that you're not a leader but you you are very much, you know, the your support. Your job is to enable in my case, infantry and, and green berets, um and their other elements to be the best they can. So it's, it's crazy sorry, I just yeah, cut,
0: cut you off but just asked yeah. a question. It's crazy to me and it's always been crazy that like If you go to West Point, you graduate the top of your class, you get to be infantry. Mm. (laughs) If you walk into a recruiting station
1: and you barely pass the test, you get to be be infantry. infantry. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Yeah, this is especially true. They had to, going back to this, um, coming out of 9-11, during our branch night, they had to go back and petition Department of Army. Usually, they give like West Point graduating class, like, like 120 infantry slots, they had to go back. And they said, every West Point cadet that's graduating like that wants infantry is going to get infantry so like they end up doubling end up being like the largest um portion of you know the west point graduating class that went infantry like in like a long long time Wow. so um but yeah there is obviously a lot of prestige around going infantry you know from you know from the military um it's you know the with the queen of battle so um but yeah i mean i think that like so it's not saying that in being intel is not like that you're not a leader but it's really not i mean like in terms of you know, even if you command a battalion or you command a company, you're, you're in charge and you're leading soldiers who most of the time are getting farmed out, right. And attached to other companies or other platoons. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for me, that was really interesting because like, I love leadership. I went to West Point, which is like a leadership laboratory preparing you to lead. But the reality is, you know, it forced me to think about leadership in much less of a command and control, much less of like a hierarchical linear kind of way. Cause yeah, my soldiers were like, NCOs would listen to me, but at the end of the day they were really also taking their guidance and their marching orders from other people, you know? Right. And so my job was really to build relationships with some of those other people and so really leading more through influence because as you know in the military typically there's a lot of like now you lead through rank and structure and hierarchy and this right. is I'm in charge so this is what we're doing, especially like out in big army. And so for me, it was it forced me and pushed me to really think through, you know, how to lead differently than my peers who were Platoon leaders or company commanders and things like that. Yeah. Um, and then the other piece, though, is is also that which has served me so well for the rest of my life has been this idea of being, you know, predictive analysis. I'll never forget my battalion commander in the battles in Najaf and Fallujah, um, then Lieutenant Colonel Jim Rainey. You know, he would just kind of like with this like a snarky look on his face, just be like, Erwin, I don't care what's happened. I can read and see what's happened. I need your your help telling me what you think is going to happen next." You know, and it was just that reinforcement or that reminder, that predictive analysis, you're always going to get things wrong. And so very often people are afraid to, to make bold predictions because they know there's a chance they're going to get it wrong. And then are people going to make fun of me? Are they, or am I going to lose credibility? I, just, I never um, struggled with that. I was just was like, nope, this is what I think is going to happen. When I was wrong, I was wrong. But uh, it, it gave me the ability to constantly be like, looking to try to see around the corner right, right. of what's going to happen next. And that's been huge for me for the past 12 years as an entrepreneur, right? Creating different organizations, being a part of things, saying like, this is a message that high school kids need to hear. This is a message in leadership, right? Leading yourself first, like in solitude and stepping back from the noise of the world. like So I'm able to look at the current environment, but then my mind immediately jumps to like a forward place, you know, and I toggle between like the present moment Sometimes I'll look back a little bit to study stuff, but I'm mostly in the present moment, and then thinking of the future and trying to drive things towards that future that I predict and that I see.
0: Yeah, I don't want to oversimplify, but I, you know, I grew up playing baseball too, and uh, I just think about, uh, and I was I was pitcher too, but uh, mm. obviously enlisted out of high school, and yep. probably you know wasn't good to get a, yeah. any big ticket anywhere, <laughs> but um, you know, pitch selection versus pitch prediction the, yeah. the pitcher and the batter battling it's like mm-hmm. you have to make a choice
1: mm-hmm.
0: it can't be a perfect choice yeah there's a likelihood that it turns out for you yep. but you can't know it until it happens
1: man i like that i never, I've never all my years i've never thought about it that way and i also my so many of my years of my life pitching that's a really great analogy about like yeah you're the batter and you gotta you have to commit to it right because you sit there and and you say, and you, yeah, what is it, like 0. 0.25 seconds or something like that yeah. to, you know, to decide like, where the ball is going to be and where you need to get your bat. Yeah. And when you think of the, the analytics on that, it's crazy, right? But that's a really yeah. interesting perspective of that you've got to commit to it. And if you're wrong, you're wrong. Much like, I guess, a soccer a goalie during penalty kicks, right? Like, if you sit there and you try to react to it, like, no, you have to commit. I'm diving this way high. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Hmm. yeah. I, I mean, I would
0: just hear, like, you know, you hear, like, they interview Big poppy. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, you know, if it's if it's belt high inside mm-hmm. and it's got no spin on the first pitch, like right. I'm swinging. If not, I'm taking. And then right. you know, the game gets more urgent the deeper into the count you get. But it's right. a two sided battle, you right. know, catcher pitcher deciding what to throw next based on what they know. But it's really forward looking. Yeah. So I, hmm. I, you know, I I kind of think of some things. And then, you know, I enjoy like, you know, game theory and yeah. and decision making under uncertainty uh if I want to get nerdy about it. Yeah. But <laughs> you know, I always I always like think back to that and it's like there's no one true, you know, correct decision. There's a decision in a time. But mm-hmm. I also say that to, you know, bring it back to something more serious. Yeah. Cuz when you think about leadership, you know, what are the most important things that a leader does and where does decision making rank there?
1: Yeah, I think that Well, first of all, I'm just I'm still trying to wrap my brain around just like this analogy. You know, have you ever heard the book called Range by David Epstein? Uh, no. Phen- phenomenal book. It's okay. basically, he, you know, it's uh, I just read it with my my oldest son. Um it's basically kind of, it, it would basically explain what you just did there. Like you basically, if you're ranging, you've got a lot of experience from different walks of life, it allows you to pull in from one to another. So people who are very rangy are really good at analogies. So okay. they can sit there and say, hey, oh, yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, the pitcher and the catcher, right, versus the batter or whatever, you know? Um, and so, anyways, that's just it tied very much, you know, to this. Um, I think from a leadership standpoint, You know, when when I studied it in grad school, I'll never forget. um, Like there was over from an academic standpoint, there was over like 200 different ways that people define leadership. I remember being blown away by that, being like, "How's there 200 different ways that people explain like what leadership is?" And, And and as you pull into it and you really start to to dig in, you really start to realize, wow, like there's all these things. Like there's inspiration, there's decision making. There's, you got to get results, you know, you're responsible for developing other people for their safety, for their well-being, for their discipline. I mean, the list goes on, right? There's vision casting. There's so many different elements to to being a leader. And at the end of the day, a big part of what you do, if you want to distill it down, right? To like the basic elements, like you make decisions and then you move people in the direction of executing those decisions. So, I mean, I I think decision-making is... Uh, has become, a, in many cases, harder today. I actually wrote an, an article for Harvard Business Review on this called "They." They, of course, made it you know like more appealing for clicks, but it was called Six Bad Six Reasons You Make Bad Decisions and What to Do About It." <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right? Uh, originally, <laughs> I called the piece. The enemies of good decision making. But like there's all these things that get. Well, made, you have to you know. quantify it to get clicks. Right. Of course. You, gotta, you gotta get the scroll. Right. I hit all six, I go on right. to the next thing. There you go. Yeah. And I knew that's what they were doing with it. But like it does, it gets a lot of it gets a lot of reads. And it's there's these, you know, six big ideas or whatever. But like as you get into it, there's there's so many reasons that making good decisions is harder than ever in the world today. And a big part of this just is just information overload, right? Yeah. Analysis paralysis. Um, and I think that you know, going back to this idea of predictive analysis and trying to like, you can pull in, like, I know some people are this way. I need more data. I need more data. I need more information. I need more information. And you really, it becomes a situation like, well, where do you really truly need more data before just kind of like making like a, you know, a blind guess. Right. Um, or where is, you know, 80 or 90, you know, making a decision with 80 or 90% of the information and executing violently, like by far the better approach than sitting around twiddling your thumbs and waiting for more Intel. Right, sure. and so again, bringing it back to all kinds of operations on the ground, like y- as you know, you're going to rarely have a perfect intel picture, and so when when is enough? When is enough enough to go? You know, and and there's no this is the this is the art of life. This is the, the art, not the science of decision making. In many ways, that like it's it's there's human element in there. There's risk. There's mistakes. You know, and and that's again what makes life what it is, and. You know, I know we continue to try to make it more algorithmic and more and more machine learning. And, like, what can we do to, like, take the the error and the risk out of it? But, you know, if you live a, a risk-free life and a risk-free operations or whatever you're doing, like, I just, I don't think you ever get there. Yeah. I think they say something
0: like ninety eight percent of all the data ever collected is within the last twenty four months right but but that that's always the case yeah <laughs> so <laughs> like so if you think of the volume and the availability of data that you actually you know you you wow. can't use it all right it? and there's you know probably not a reason to use it if you're not Google or Amazon or mm-hmm. whatever, and I'm sure even they have to parse yeah know, what do we actually need right um Oh, like a side that has nothing to do with this. Yeah. I was at the airport yesterday and there's a new store and, uh, you swipe your card and walk through the turnstile, mm-hmm. put whatever you want in the bag and walk wow. out. That's wild. And I was, and know immediately I look and I'm like, okay, well, how does it work? Right. And I, <laughs> I look up into the ceiling and you know, it was about like a 20 by 20 space and there's about a hundred cameras in the ceiling. Wow. That's wild. And and I'm like, okay, someone programmed these cameras to like watch me pick up stuff. And yeah. wow, yeah, I mean this is like you've heard me obviously about. And this is me yeah. getting
1: like a bag of Doritos, right? Right. So <laughs> yeah. like, what are they doing at the FBI? Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like that's. I mean, you've heard the story before of like the Whole Foods, the goal, right, of going there and just like walk right out, and the, they won't even. Made, they won't even in the future need you to swipe your card. You're right. just going to know. Oh, that's Matt walking in. Like they, your market, and then they just scan everything as it goes out. I mean, this I mean, this gets into, Matt, like, I think a fundamentally this like important like philosophical question to grapple with, you know, and that is like, you know, how much, like how much of like this acceleration of automation and technology where it does make our life more convenient because objectively it's going to be more convenient, right, to just sit there go pick up your stuff and walk out. Right. Then go through and swipe and check yourself out or go in and, and wait, you know, right. to, to you know, have like a person check out. But again, like I just, I don't know, you know about how much how important is that interaction in the store you know even with the you know with the person checking you out how important is that person's job right to them because a lot of times people like that 's their job and like their sense of uh purpose and their chance to make money right you know so i just I think about all the time about the future about you know like self driving cars and trucks and like all the truck drivers and all the uber drivers and all these people who have jobs right. and and I know that over history, we've always kind of like, it's like squeezing you know, air out in the balloon, right? Go from one place to goes to the next, right. you know, when textile work went offshore, like the service industry boomed, And it's just going to be really interesting to see in the future. Like, how does this all play out? Because um, as machines take on more and more and humans are needed less and less, um, what does that mean, right? What kind of jobs are necessary if you're not like a coder or you're not like in right. that, that tech landscape? Well, you hear people say, well,
0: well, you know, they'll just go through like upskilling. It's mm-hmm. like a fancy buzzword that means you like driving trucks, yeah. but you can't anymore. Right. We're going to upskill you to drive a computer. Right. And, you know, some people don't like like I spend way too much time in front of a computer yeah. now. It's you know, inherent in the decision I made with what I do for work now. Yeah. But you know, it's part that I don't like about it. Yeah. Um, but you know, what happens when ninety percent of people's job is just attached to a computer? Totally. That, it's, yeah. It's uh, it's scary. Yeah. But you know, the one thing you said about convenience is, you know, the trade-off for security is always convenience. Oh yeah. It's having your password on a sticky note with totally. <laughs> your your dog's name, right? <laughs> and it, versus twelve yeah. characters and yeah. you know. Tildes and everything—it's uh, uh, yeah—it's always the trade-off for security. So when you you know it happens a little bit at a time. So when you pay out a little bit of security for convenience, you know, you look back five years later and say, you know, mm-hmm. my phone unlocks
1: with my face. And Yeah, right, I mean, I don't, it's I don't a, like that. <laughs> I mean, this gets into very like, again a deeply like philosophical space, but like there's so much here, you know, about the. Um, have you read the book called The Comfort Crisis? Um, by Michael Easter. I've heard of it. It's yeah. phenomenal. It's absolutely phenomenal. Um, I'm and, not very well read. I'm yeah. a podcast yeah. addict. Yeah, I'll send you some podcasts. He's on. He's on a, a couple yeah, okay. of podcasts. You know, recently that were very good. Um, but yeah, he wrote this book uh, called The Comfort Crisis, and he's I think like a writer for Men's Health or something like that. But he spent a lot of time with like like uh, people you know, all over the world. You know, that kind of like live un- uncomfortably, if you yeah. will and lessons learned from them and all that kind of stuff. But one, it would resonate with you personally deeply, but it just gets into this idea of, you know, how we continue to engineer, like just like, sometimes he talks about it a lot of like, for example, like how important it is like to sit upright, right? Cause like when you, just as an example, right? You sit, if you, if you slouch right now, your back muscles are working harder. Your at your core is getting softer, yeah. right? And now like it's a vicious cycle. Now your back hurts more cause your core isn't as strong. Right. right. And so he just uses that as an example of like people used to like at least have to like go from their house to the car to the subway that they have to, used to walk to get around places. And that there's lots of people now that kind of do like the bare minimum of like, you know, cause they work from home, 2,500 steps a day. Like they wake up, they go to the kitchen, right? right. They, they kind of just shuffle between like the kitchen, the shower and the bathroom the coffee pot, um, and their work from home office. And they literally don't get outside and like feel the sun on their face and and do all that. So it's a really interesting, just question, you know, moving forward about how important, you know, are some of these basic wellness practices. I follow another guy named Andrew Huberman um, out of Huberman lab at Stanford university. He talks about like seeing sunrise, uh, how important that is. He talks about like seeing, um, big expansive landscapes, like seeing like trees and like, because you know so much of our of our you know our, our neurological power is like constricted to a phone and it, yeah. like, it narrows and like you gotta broaden you, you know your um and you, you know, collect about you know cold showers and stuff like just all these things that, that seem kind of like eh, are they really that important but like in aggregate you start looking at like the benefit of taking a cold shower to wake up um getting outside and seeing the sunrise like um, and seeing an expansive horizon you do those three things basically like in the first hour of you being awake like basically like you are on the offensive for the day right anyways bring it back to the book of the comfort crisis is that we just continue to engineer right a lot of like the small inconveniences out of life We're like Yeah, oh, let's make it a little bit more convenient <laughs> right you know and we make it more convenient but in the process of making it more convenient like we continue to engineer out like another 250 or 300 or 500 steps in a day yeah and so everything from your posture and your back to how many steps you move is is increasing the velocity at which we become sedentary, which doesn't just affect your physical health; it affects your mental and your emotional health.
0: Right. So, so uh, maybe my coffee machine shouldn't have Bluetooth.
1: <laughs> <laughs> See, that's exactly the kind of thing. right? Or you're a smoker. Like I'm going to control it from my phone, right? Like yeah. you, you know, even think about getting a movie back in the day. I used to like get in your car, go to Blockbuster, get out of your car, right? look around, shuffle around the store, to see what movie you want, wait in line, yeah. rent it. And while wildly inconvenient, like you had to put in it, probably about 500, 700 steps just to go get that movie. Yeah. And now it's like you shuffle to your TV, right? Or you go to your, or your, your TV phone. does play next right. automatically. Yeah. Right. So anyways, I'm, I'm interested just in, in how, that, how that buffs out over time. because I think we have to be intentional about some of these things and kind of like say, no, 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 I'm going to I'm going to do things a little bit different here. Even though it's not as convenient, I'm going to do it this way because like, I don't want it to be so convenient that I just get numb to like the quote unquote inconveniences of life. So, right. Sometimes, uh, you know, it's going to (laughs) sound stupid, but yeah,
0: I take my dog for a walk, but on some days. I really just need the dog to walk me. Totally.
1: No, this is, I mean, this is exactly,
0: she'll come up and just start like pawing at me at the, at the computer desk and, uh, you know, it's probably because she has to go out. She's letting me know. But some days she's just like, what the hell are you doing there? Right, yeah. You know, what, is that, <laughs> what is that thing right. that you yeah. stare there into now. all day? Yeah. Let's go to the totally. park.
1: Yeah. Like, you know, there's a park right here. Right. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, that's absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, it's like the, prom- the prompts we get right from a phone. Like, you know, like, so I wear an aura ring, you know, I so say you got a Whoop on, right? Okay. Like tracking my suit. So I'll get like prompts, right? Being like you know time to stretch your legs a bit (laughs) you know question mark you know but like sometimes we need those prompts and and animals or our kids like anyone like there can be like different prompts in our system to remind us of oh yeah geez i gotta step away from this right for a little bit yeah
0: Uh, i want to go back to grad school during the military Mm -hmm. so
1: natural like career progression or something you had to seek out you know i um you know, by the way, I just heard. I almost sort of like a Canadian, uh, like oh. you know, <laughs> going towards your uh, your northern roots. I am a, I yeah. am I am accent fluid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I was to play with the Canadians in 06, 07, and oh nine. I mean, of course, they had that deep like, oh, boot, you know, like yeah, really did. deep. But I hear it in people in Minnesota. You know, I also watch a lot of hockey. Maybe yeah. that's infecting me. There you go. I'll watch the bro- <laughs> watch the broadcast.
0: Yeah, um, but um, I'm sorry. Your question was again. Bring me back. <laughs> Oh, your, uh, so decision to, or grad school, is grad per, school. career progression,
1: or how much yeah. you know say do you have over it? Would you yeah, so, to so I majored in economics at West Point. So I, I said, hey, if I come, one, I thought I was going to graduate West Point, I was, was going to do five years and get out, hmm. right? Um, I, I got to my four-year mark, and I was at third Special Forces Group. The assignment was amazing. The unit was amazing. The mission was was incredible. And so I said, I'm in. Right, and so I I made I made the decision to commit to like at least another handful of years. Um, That's when I decided to apply to West Point to go back and teach. I wanted to go back and teach in the social sciences department, maybe get my MBA, Um, and then I took my. So I studied really hard for like a year in some of my free time, you know, while deployed, um, which wasn't much, but I would spend usually about probably five hours a week studying for the for the GMAT. Mm -hmm. Um, I did good, I did well, but not that well, right? Someone got like you know a handful of people got like seven forties and seven fifties and all that. And they basically said, Hey, thanks for applying, but you're, you know, you're, you're not good enough. Right. <laughs> so, right. um, but then the psychology department, there a woman named major Dina Brager basically said, um, like she met me. She was like, I know, like you, like I know that you might not think this, but like, I think you'd really like this field, this burgeoning field of positive psychology. Um, and so that was really the, the point, and that was in 2007, and she kind of, you know, turned me on to the idea of positive psychology, what it is, and, and I started reading about it and studying it, and then she said, oh, by the way, there's this guy named Chris Peterson at the University of Michigan. He's, like, one of the co-founders of the field, and he's got a relationship with us here, and I think he would love to take someone like you on, like, as, you know, a mentee. So, um yeah, so that was like what pushed me there, but again, one of those things of like you know what you ask for is often you, you know not what you get, but what you get is exactly what you needed. If I went back from my my MBA, I certainly would have been you know more efficient in lots of things, right from everything from the finance side to the marketing side, um, but the psychology going that route um, it completely opened like up my horizons you know to how people think and how I think and why I do what I do and why other people do what they do, you know? And so it really changed like, you know, really my outlook on life um, for the rest of my life by studying these theories about, you know, and explaining how, uh, you know, people form bad habits and what they can do to break them and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, and then I went back to West Point and taught psychology. So I had a heavy focus in the psychology world for about five years between grad school and teaching it, but that shaped my thinking forever. So what's, I mean, what is positive psychology versus just yeah. the field of psychology? So traditional psychology is basically has a, usually has a bad stink to it. Right. Cause it's okay. like, dude, don't try to like read my brain, you know, right. um, it's traditional, you know, psychology is the scientific study of what we think and what we do. Right. To, to boil it down to positive psychology. Uh, so what that means is that traditional psychology looks primarily at what is wrong with people okay. and primarily, you know, their faults and like, and, You know, the DSM. So, like, it looks at everything from anorexia and bulimia to, you know, schizophrenia and ADHD. And and so, it really studies that and tries to understand disorder. Positive psychology came along in 1998, so not that long ago. And uh, Dr. Martin Seligman was the head of the American Psychological Association at the time and said, Hey, um, we need to carve out a field within the umbrella of psychology that also intentionally studies what is good and what is right. And so, basically, that's what it is. Positive psychology is a science; it applies the scientific method. So, I come up with uh, with theories or hypotheses, Mm -hmm. right? I collect data on them, I analyze them, um, and so on. What goes right with people? So, it studies things like post traumatic growth—people who go through trauma and grow from it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It studies resilience. It studies how people can overcome adversity and and how they use their character strengths to be able to drive like a better outcome when it seems like all hope is lost. Right. So a lot, you know, Shackelford and like you would study people like that. Right. And Victor Frankel and Louis Zamperini, right. From, you know, unbroken in world war two. Yeah. Like you would look at people like that and say, what was it about them? What did they do that helped them to be so resilient, to be so successful? So yeah. I love uh Shackelford's ad in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. It's
0: like, uh, I, I wish I had it in front of me right now, but yeah. it's, it's perfect. So oh, it's, yeah. I'll, I'll
1: probably like cut in and read it right yeah. here. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. I remember. It, I can't remember the, the words either, but I, I remember like the, the, yeah, the and theme it's of like, it. Like, uh, it's like
0: men wanted, <laughs> tough journey, unsure return, <laughs> little pay. Like, <laughs> Inqu- sign, sign me up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Inquire here. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. It's great. Yeah. And, you know, there's like 50 marketing blogs who've right. done a piece on it. Right. Yeah so is this, is this time during grad school where you also came up with the idea for a team red, white, and blue right? It and is after working at the VA?
1: so I when I was in grad school oh nine to eleven the the uh, the Ann Arbor VA attached to the medical school was like the eleventh biggest VA hospital in in America, and so I spent some time going over there trying to i honestly can 't remember what I was over there for like i, was I wasn 't volunteering I was over there like talking to them about maybe an event. And I met a woman named Jennifer Lohr, who was a social worker there. And I kind of just asked her, like, hey, because she was a caseworker for a lot of veterans, you know, post nine eleven 11 veterans who were struggling. And I tried to better understand, like, the themes or what what is it that they need and all that. Um, but, yeah, bottom line is I started Team Red, White, and Blue um, in 2010 um, while I was a grad student and studying positive psychology and leadership. Um, and And so, again, it was the perfect opportunity to have the time and the bandwidth necessary to do both the, the kind of like let's call it the intellectual work of like, this is what the organization should be. Right. You know, writing white papers and making the business case, so to speak. But I had no idea what I was doing. I was 29 years old. Like all I would known um, was Iraq and Afghanistan and traveling and partying you know, yeah. in, in my time since graduating West Point, in know, So in that seven years, like it was moving fast, right? Like, you know, Iraq once, Afghanistan twice, PCS and great, you know, basic course captain's course I was in Arizona and I, I, so it was just so fast that seven years flew by and I and it was the first time my, in my seven years I actually slowed down enough where I was like whoa a lot just happened in seven years and this is like pre-social media days like you know pre phones that you can now go to your phone and like scroll and look at pictures oh yeah I was that was there in 2014 right like yeah. you no one knows where you're at I mean, like in 2004 Right. Unless you got like pictures from like your Kodak camera or something like that. You know <laughs> I mean, like like or maybe you have an email written somewhere of, hey, I'm in Baghdad right now. Like, but, you know, w- we forget how far we've come and being able to even be able to study ourselves in our past. But it's it forced me to slow down enough where I was like taking stock of like everything. And I started to look around and see some of the challenges that my soldiers who had just gotten out were facing. Um, but bottom line is, yes, I started Team Red, White and Blue. You know, and wanted to build it as a positive psychology based organization that would, you know, help veterans to transition to their new life, their life beyond the military, um, in a way that would be healthy, you know, um, because it was just apparent, like with not just with the suicide epidemic, but like a lot of the mental health and the PTSD and the invisible wounds of war and all the conversation and articles being written about all that in 0, 09, 10, 11, 12, that that window of time. Um, for me, it was a chance to say, like, I need to do something about that. Yeah. Right. And I don't know exactly what it's going to look like or how I'm going to get there because I don't know what I'm doing. I've never built an organization before, but like, I'm going to get in the water and start rowing. So,
0: yeah. You're, uh, you run ultra marathons. So, you start
1: good way is just to get a gang full of people and start. <laughs> that's, what, that's where it started, right? Yeah. It was marathons. So, funny story is that I was at third group, you know, at the time. And, and one of the like the seeds plant, cause I'm a big believer people plant seeds all the time, like in our minds. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes, like, when we least expect that they, they flourish. Um, uh, a couple of guys there were like, Hey Irwin, like, cause at the time, you know, as an Intel guy, I'd like to, you know, beyond doing really good work, the number one way I could gain respect, you know, with the infantry and special forces communities is by being good at, in, in fitness, yeah. you know? So I was like, I worked really hard in my running, my rucking, you know, um, and all that kind of stuff. So I was, you know, I'd go out there and I would, on Fort Bragg, I'd do like a six mile loop and I'd do it in about, you know, Six and a half minute miles, seven minute miles. Like and it, even in the heat of summer and all that, I come back like still can see like a locker of just like sweat right from like like how hard you know we would go out and run. Yeah. Um, but he said, "Hey, you no longer have to impress us. You're going to go to grad school, right? And you you don't have to impress us green berets anymore. And you're gonna you're gonna get soft." And I remember them. It was said in jest, right, and like a little bit of like a poke. Yeah. Um, but like there was absolute truth in that, whether or not they knew it or not, there was absolute truth in that. That the pressure to perform, the professor, the pressure that we place to, um, you, know, you know, to stay fit, to be active, like, is very much social, right? Like, it's very little of is like if you're just doing it for just yourself, like, and it's you and you want to get faster on the rower. So I got you know a home gym here, so I got a rower and a Jacobs ladder and a skier, and like, um, like if that's just me, like. Like you do wrong. I want to push myself because I'm motivated to do that. But like, there's only so much that motivation right. can only take you so far. Well, all of a sudden, other people are here, and I was here with the former Green Beret, one of my friends, John Faunce is over visiting. He just left yesterday. Like all of a sudden, like there's someone there. It's like I'm going to bring my A game. You know what I mean? On the rower, right? I'm, yeah. I want to go seven thirty, eight, you know, two k. And so I'm going to like do. All, I'm going to empty the tank and go all out. You know, yeah. so there is that social pressure that we feel, right? When we're in the military, when we're in the unit, that then when that goes away, like. Yeah. Like it's, it's, you can see how very much people can kind of like let go of themselves. And so that was the impetus for me of signing up for, I said, okay, as soon as I started to feel that, like within being in, in Ann Arbor, Michigan for a couple of months, I was like, yeah, I got to sign up for something. I got to start, I got to scare myself into like staying fit. Cause once you sign up for a race, now you're like, well, I'm committed. You know? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So anyways, that's just a synopsis of it. But I do believe a lot in the power of what I call positive peer pressure. So, nice. Yeah.
0: We, uh, Yeah. I'm thinking of committing to something that's going to force me to, uh, get some miles. Yeah. So, yeah, we used to always joke, like, you know, when you're, when you're in your twenties and you're going working out at the gym, you know, there's a hot chick over there. It's like 10% power boost, you know, put that, put that other plate on. Uh, yeah. But also, you know, when I left the military, I went to school for like five years straight, Mm -hmm. undergrad straight into grad school. And, uh, uh, you know, started working at a computer and all this other stuff. And I came down here to visit and one of my old teammates, old buddies looks, looks at me. And, you know, as you're walking up to shake each other's hand yeah. or give each other a hug, all yeah. he does is just grab me by yeah. the gut. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> grabs me by the yeah. belly. Yeah. And he's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I need that more regularly. Yeah. Nobody in my right. life today. Right. Is going to do that to me, right? And there's nothing wrong with doing it to me. You know, I mean, tried doing that in the workplace, but like, you know, (laughs) it'll never fly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, No, I mean, that's great. So, so you know, there's this again. The the military is like a forcing mechanism to just get up and run, or to just look good. Yeah. Right. To to you know look clean. Yep. have some pride in yourself, and totally. uh, and use that as like a framework to just you know do your best. Um, how much how much did you just think of like mimicking the activities of daily military life as a starting point, and where has it gone from there?
1: Yeah, so I think that probably intuitively, you know, or subconsciously, I mimicked it in many ways, kind of like that. I was like, hey, I'm going to get up, and I'm going to start the day with a run. You know, Um, and I tried to pull other people into it because I knew that, again, there's a balance between working out on your own and then working out with other people. Right. And I think there's a place for both. Like, I like the solitary nature of some of those longer runs on my own. But sometimes I'm like, man, this sucks. Like, I really would like to have you know someone else here to be able to talk through because like when you talk through things, the time goes a lot faster. I don't know what the psychology of it is, but right. Like your mind is not focusing on the discomfort. It's focusing on the conversation. Well, when you like the people, right. Right. When you like the people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Precursor. (laughs) So, um, so I think that that like, it really then started to evolve into, um, as the organization grew more and more, um, just variety of, of fitness. And that's the big thing, of course, in the military, you know, so we started out very much run centric, run, rock, hike centric. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you realize, like, wait a minute, rock climbing, you know, and yoga uh, and CrossFit. Because even CrossFit, like, you know, we, outside of, you know, SF units and all that, like the military is like, no, 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 no CrossFit. <laughs> right. Like, you know, um, they maybe would let you go to the brigade gym and like throw some weights around. Well, they know? just did like this new PT test. Right.
0: That's, you know, like throwing a ball over right. your head and doing some other kind of stuff. Right. Totally. So someone kind of, you know, went from push-up, sit-up two-mile
1: right. to something. So that's two. why. And that's, I think the CrossFit and all that kind of movement of functional fitness that really was in that period of time started to shape people's thinking around, wait, what's, what's the purpose of a PT test? Right. You know, <laughs> you, know you, you have that old, that, like, old, crusty –
0: Right. Uh squad leader right. who is like drinking a Dr. Pepper, ripping a butt <laughs> and, uh, and maxing his PT right. test. The guy can, you know, right. he's, he's like got no muscle. Yeah. He's right. got a little, he's got a yeah. little Buddha belly, Dr. Pepper <laughs> and a cigarette. Yeah. And he's, and he's, you know, maxing his two mile, right. Just like, cause what? he's
1: done it every day for yep. the last 15 yep. years. 15 of to 18 life. years. Totally. <laughs> so I do think that the shift in that, you know, in the army, in certainly in the army has you know um it's started to happen but for team Red, White, and blue my big mess look my big message to veterans in general is when people leave the military most of them are like i don't want to exercise again why because they they associate it with being in early in the morning right you got to wake up early as hell right um and you're standing around waiting for it to begin and then when you be then when you begin it's primarily like you said it's a bunch of like maybe some grass drills or you know gorilla drills but like it's primarily like push-ups and sit-ups and then you're gonna go down Battalion Avenue or our dens and you're gonna run back and forth, right? And so people don't most veterans don't have a positive or a warm and fuzzy association with fitness. Right, And I say all the time, is like, look, those excuses go out the door when you leave the military. You can PT whenever you want. If you're not, oh, I'm not a morning person. Great. Do it f- during your lunch break. Oh, like a- do it after work. Right. Do it like if you work from home, take a break in the middle of your day and go for a run or a hike or go to the gym for an hour at 10 a.m. Like figure out how to make it work for you. But it's not just that. It's also that you've got the variety. You can do whatever you want. You want to do plotties Pilates you want to do yoga, you want to do, there's, there's gyms for all these things, like, you know, that they can, you know, in these modalities, there's um, gyms that can put you through and, and help you train, like Chris Maximer over here, at, you know, Evolution Athletics, so, like, there's all kinds of variety on, on how you can get after these things, and I just, I think very often that, like, a lot of veterans don't, Fully embrace or realize that. And they just kind of say, now I'm done. I'm done. I'm checked out. I'm done with this. And then they go to like my knees hurt or my back hurts. And then they, uh, then the excuse train starts rolling, right? And, yeah. and they're not wrong. but guess what? Like, that's when you need PT all the more. If you start having aches or pains or injuries, like, it's, that's not the reason to not exercise. That's the reason that you need to exercise, yeah. you know? And so, like, those are the conversations we try to have with veterans in our organization of like, dude, you don't got to like it. You've got to look forward to it. I dread going on the Jacob Slatter every single day. But, all the more important that you go through and do it because every time I get off that thing, I feel so good, right? And, and I, I just, I do, I feel bad for people who have lost um, knowledge and feeling of how good it feels to finish a good workout because it just it's not just the, what it does for you physically and mentally, but it's, it's a confidence booster, right? And it's okay. just a sense of like, hey, for the rest of the day, check, I did, I did that. Right. I did something that was hard that I didn't want to do. And so it changes like the neurological connections in your brain to give you more confidence to attack the day, you know? And and I just think that like there's so many people that need to rediscover the power of fitness in their life.
0: Yeah. I, I, I thought, you know, when it's like once you lose a little momentum, then all the arthritis starts to just creep in. totally, And then you lose a little more and your gut starts to pay out a little bit and uh and if you
1: don't do whatever you can do to ripple just effects like, yeah it's the bad it's the negative of ripple effects right it's like it goes and like again a lot of in front of the computer when you're not sitting properly again the back and then the back and the nerves the sciatica and then the, that core i mean, it's just it, it gets it gets pretty ugly pretty fast you know yeah yeah what about the like the
0: business side of running an organization right because you know it's, and you said like one of a. I was talking about decision points, but yep. you said another big part of being a leader is to inspire. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, that's a big part of your game and what you do, but also how do you build the team? How do you manage, right? Like finances, admin, Yeah. Out, you know.
1: I am very much a believer on, you know, the strengths-based model or the strengths-based approach, right? That if you try to be, you know, good at everything, you know then you will run You will run yourself ragged, you know? And so I prefer, so I know what my strengths are. My strengths are vision and strategy, um, inspiration, and then like communication of like that vision externally, right? So I know what my strengths are um, in every organization I'm a part of. And when I veer off of those, that's when it, it becomes taxing for me. When I'm doing those things, like um, I just, I don't tire. You know what I mean? Like, I, and I'm—I got a natural like high, you know, sort of energy level. But like, I don't tire; I don't get worn out. When I start going off the course, and I and I get into the admin, to the legal, to the even to the operations, to the logistics, things like that. Um, and so, uh, but guess what? In Team Reliant really, Blue, I had to do all that. But I had so much fire for the mission in 2010, 11, and 12. Before we could start to hire people and bring people in to do that, I was able to take all those things on, you know, to a certain extent, and and really just um. You know, not get burnt out from that. But I think the key becomes you've got to pick and choose your teammates, right? So my books, I've written, you know, co-authored two books. I found, you know, great teammates for that people whose strengths supplement mine. Right. Um. You know, when it comes to the positivity project, co-founder Jeff, so I, I, I jokingly say I co a lot of things. Right. I co-founded, you know, positivity project. I co-founded Father Vincent Capadano High School. Um. I have co-authored two books, like, um. I work with Caroline Angel on something called the Resilient Culture Initiative. So I work with a lot of different people on things because people know what my strengths are and they also know what my weaknesses are, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I'm very open about what my weaknesses are. So in terms of your question, going back to like building the businesses, like you've got to find the right people because that stuff has to get done, as you know. If those things don't get done, (laughs) well, you're not going to build a very successful organization, be it a company or be it a nonprofit, you know? And so I think it really is aligning with the right people who... And then again, it's that person, you know, or that group of people and you starting with self awareness. Like, everyone knowing what am I good at? Like, we've got this woman at Father Capitano High School named Frances Platts, former army nurse. Like, she is just a get shit done kind of person, right? Like, she, like, you just know if you, you need to plan an event, you need to do this, she is going to run, like, she's gonna run through walls and make it happen. And you just know that you can count on her to do that. Mm-hmm. Right? and so it, I think it starts with self-awareness, but then it's also everyone, as many people as possible in the team having self-awareness that everyone knows what one another is good at. Cause then you know, hey guys, we gotta plan an event. I know no one here likes logistics. Someone's gotta jump on that grenade, yeah. right? I'll do it, right? You know, whatever it might be. And, and I keep coming back to that idea of, you know, how important it is that like for people to have that self-awareness, you know, when building any sort of organization. And and I'll I'll end it with like a story, you know. There's a kids book out there, um, and it's a bit of an inside joke with me and some friends. But um, it's called The Peacock and the Hens. Um, I'm guessing you've never heard of it, but <laughs> so it's ob- I might be able to sense <laughs> yeah. what it's about. <laughs> yeah, it's an obscure little you know kids book or whatever. But bottom line, there's a peacock and it's out there on the road, strutting its feathers, right, just sitting there, like seemingly doing nothing. Right. But its job was to like get the attention of cars that would pass by and say, eggs, $5 a dozen. Right. And then the hens are in the back. Right. And the hens are in the hen house and they're, you know, doing the hard work. They're laying the eggs. They're, you know, they're, they're building the product. Right. Um, and one day the hens come out and say, you know what? Like, after they've been, you know, been talking with each other, like, this is ridiculous. That peacock just stands out there on the road and and struts its feathers. And we're in here, you you know, in this coop. Right, doing all this work. And so they go up to the peacock and say, Hey, we're going to change. We're going to be the one, we're going to be out here on the road and you go back there and you do some of the work to lay the eggs. And the peacock is like, Okay. So the peacock goes in, barely can fit into the coop, right? Sits there, tries to lay an egg really hard, right? (laughs) Can't, can't lay an egg. So now there's no eggs being laid in the coop, right? The chickens are out by the road flapping their wings like a bunch of idiots trying to get cars to stop. And all the cars are like, What are these chickens doing right here? And within like a day, like, the chickens realize, like, man, we should, you know, let's go back to the way we did it because no one's stopping anymore because we got the peacock in the hen house and no one's laying eggs anymore because you got us out here flapping our wings instead of, you know, being back there in the hen house. And again, the moral of the story, right, is that, and so people are jokingly, you know, kind of refer to me as a peacock, you know? So <laughs> um, they've gone as far as like they asked me get a peacock out here at the farm, but they're, apparently they're really loud. Um, but it's just the whole idea of like, like I kind of own it and know it that like, look, I'm the person who's going to be out there talking about the mission of anything else that we're doing, yeah. you know, whether it's Capadano High School or the Positivity Project or Team Red, White and Blue or my books. Um, but ultimately, like, I am not the one really that does the majority of the work, right? Um, but but I own that and, and I own that with pride because. Like, if you're doing all the best work in the world and you don't have a person who's more like a peacock, while they might be obnoxious at times, right, out there telling the world about the work and doing it, like, all the best work in the world, all the best eggs in the world, all the best schools or the best programs in the world only goes so far if your organization doesn't have that person or that couple of people that are out there getting the cars to stop. So, Is that what... Uh you know, kind of brought you to the
0: level of recognition that, that the organization has now. Totally. I I know that there are, you know, hun- thousands of like charities that bring in like 50 or $100,000 and yeah. it's somebody's side job or project to where, you know, moving into, you know, being like actually a big league organization. Mm-hmm. You know, how did you get there from, you know,
1: 12 years in? It's yeah. a long time. Yeah. I mean, that first year we did like, I think like 100, like $110,000 raised in 2010. And then we grew it to like four eighty, and then we grew it to like nine seventy five. So in those first years, we started to grow the revenue, you know, enough to be able to hire and bring on staff and all that. But yeah. that's the thing. And typically, the, you know, a founder typically is like a peacock, right? Because like they're out there talking about it and sharing it with the world. Um, and look, this is, this is part of the complexity of organization building. There is, like going back to the head and the peacock story, the reason why it's so funny is because like it's so real right? That like a lot of the people who are doing the work are like, wait a minute, like why, you know, the founders getting all this credit and, and you right. as the founder or the CEO of any organization, the principal, the school, whatever it might be, are going to be getting a lot of the attention and a lot of the focus and uh, therefore a lot of the credit or the blame if things go well or they don't. Yeah. Um, and just like the, the head coach in football or the quarterback, you get a disproportionate amount of the credit when things go right or wrong, you know? Yeah. Um, and it, but it can cause friction, you know, it can cause people to be like, Like, oh, they're always acknowledging him, right? Like, it's like being the one, like, and over here, we're the ones doing all the work, you know, to make this ship go, right? right? And so you have to have that balance and that that combination of humility across the team to know that, like, hey, he's out there doing the peacock thing because, like, that's what we need to make sure that all of our hard work gets maximized, you know? Um, And I think that a lot of times in organizations, when I study them, like, you often see a lot of friction between co-founders or friction between, like, like, you know, the the people who started, who then step back and other people move there's just always not always, there's a very often a lot of friction there, you know, um, because there's egos get in play and we all have egos. And and people say like, ah, you know, he or she is getting too much of you know of the credit, you know, and it's like like look, it's not about the person, it's about the organization. Right. You know, well do you want what you do to Reach a hundred people right. or a million people exactly because that's what I'm bringing to it totally. And if you want to reach a million, in our case we have two hundred and like twenty five thousand like members. Like if you want to reach a million veterans, you know by twenty thirty, which is our goal, right? Then you've got to have you can't just digital mark on your way to success. You need you know not just a peacock. You need peacocks you know you know throughout, throughout our chapters and throughout the country to be the ones like that are really just trumpeting and talking to the world, you know, about what we do. And that's how, you go back to your question, that's a big way that we've grown, right? We've we found a lot of the right people who are super passionate about what we do and they carry that message, they carry the brand, they carry it forward, you know, to you know, to other people that they know. Yeah. So if if you said like, you
0: know, you're at 250,000 members, mm-hmm. if you
1: become a member what actually happens yeah what does that mean so yeah you join so easiest time you join you download our app right so like one of the few veteran nonprofits, you know in the world that has like uh, an app um and it's getting better but it's basically it's like you join there and it's our, essentially you are become a part of our virtual community that allows you opportunities to engage virtually but much more importantly to find and discover local events happening right um that you can participate in OK, um, so when you join, you, know, you get a shirt. So that's kind of like your marker, your identifier. It's kind of like, you know, in the military, you get issued your uniform while we issue, you know, you like a red fitness shirt. Um, I've got one for you downstairs, okay. you know, um, and um, and then that's something that you're encouraged to wear. And if nothing else, you can be a part of it. We tell people all the time you can be a part of the mission by be, by doing nothing but being an ambassador, i.e. working out yourself. And whether you post about it on Team Red White Blue on social media or you train for a race on it and then you wear the eagle or just talking to people that you know that have served or people that you've served with and letting them know, hey, there's this organization that's out there that can help help you stay motivated to to remain physically active. Because the reality is if you don't join a local gym right, or a fitness studio or something like that. Um, most of us need motivation to be physically active because it's not fun. This is not like you don't need motivation to go sit on the couch and binge watch Netflix or watch, you know, you know, a whole bunch of TV, right? Right. You you don't need motivation for that. You (laughs) can, you can just go do that. Um, But being, you need, most people need motivation to go work out. And so that's where, again, that positive peer pressure and some of our challenges come in. So when you join the team, there's a series of like some of these like badges and virtual challenges that you can participate in, like the purple heart challenge and the 1776 challenge Um, but then there's also bigger things out into nature, like, you know, excursions like out into the Smoky Mountains or the Adirondacks or the Grand Canyon. So we do some of these things called Eagle Expeditions. We do a thing called the Old Glory Relay, where this year we're moving a single American flag from Washington, D.C. to Birmingham, Alabama for the opening ceremonies of the World Games. And so we'll move a flag 3,100 miles over like 45 days or something like that. Hmm. So we got these different physical fitness kind of events. But even if you don't participate in those, it's just the idea of we want to help you see you know, to be physically active yourself, but then also to let others that you've served with or others that you know, right, that have lost track of the power of PT in their life to know that, like, there's an organization that they can join and belong to that will help them get there. And it's, uh, you have civilians too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So 30% of our members are often military families or just you know, people who, know people who've been in the military, and, yeah. and they want to support their, their transition, reintegration, and post-military life. Nice. I'll get you one person closer to a million yeah. There today. you go.
0: Today. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk about
1: how do you even start to write a book? So I think a lot of people have this idea in their mind of, hey, I'd like to write a book. Yeah. You know, I think that it crosses a lot of people's minds. For some people, it's more of a memoir, like, hey, I want to write about my life or about my deployment or about my transition or you name it. There's all kinds of topics you can write books on. Um, you know, it is much more accessible today than ever because you can write your own book and, and have and self publish it and make it feel professional. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I do think that a lot of people have gone that route. I don't think there's anything wrong with that route um, going the route of getting like a, a, an agent or a publishing company and all that. Because we live in the information age, those people used to be hard to find and hard to get a hold of. Um, and so they're no longer that's the case. Like you can you can run people down. And so they are inundated and overwhelmed with people with with ideas to write books. So their default setting is no, 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 no. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so even with like the closest of relationships and like a great like, it's still like the stars kind of have to align. Right. To get you know, have a book get picked up. Um, I've had two. Right picked up by different publishers, Bloomsbury and then Wiley, um, you know, once you write one book, it helps, you know, it's next, if you can kind of be able to show, Hey, we've sold 38,000 copies, right. Or whatever it is of a book, um, you know, but uh, it, it is a journey you know um, it very much is a, a test because you're not gonna make money on it. Right. To be clear. So just like, you know, <laughs> podcasting, yeah. Like, I mean, like this is like a, a thing that you want to do to get better yourself. Yeah. Right. And you want to yeah. be able to have something that like you can say, look, this is a like something I'm proud of doing. Right. And, and I've spent my time yeah. doing yeah. that. Well, A
0: fraction of percent right. of podcasts right. are profitable. Right. Totally. Uh, so we totally do it for, you
1: know, yeah. for the, for the growth and for the passion and for yeah. the chance to meet people. And like, yeah. you know, So going back to the book is it's very similar in that regard. Like you've got to feel you've got to feel strongly enough about what you're writing that you're going to endure the the doldrums and the uh, you know screw this I'm out I'm just going to watch some TV right or I'm going to you know whatever do something else other than sit here and grind away because as you know writing is extremely hard right it's like it's a very solitary act. Um, it's a very self- doubting you know action where you're like, oh, did I say that right And like you beat yourself up and you critique yourself like and so writing is very difficult, you know, as we all know from you know if nothing else our time in high school, like you know in college, if you've gone to college about you know like um, how hard it is to write. so, yeah, um, that, that word count or that page count
0: to me mm-hmm. was always just like a finish line. Yes, like totally. ten, 10 pages, done. Eh, eh, done. like on to the 10th page right. and we're yep. done.
1: Yeah, yep. totally. And so they like put together, you know, 60,000, 70,000 words. Well, yeah, right? to think like, well, like, a book is like a couple hundred pages. Right. How totally. does that happen? Totally. Yeah. Um, and so like it's it's very much a process. But if you feel strongly about a message or feel strongly about it, I I'd encourage people to go for it, you know. Mm. Um you know, and, and I think beyond that, it really is about like trying to add something unique in perspective. I would like for me, like, I would never want to write like a memoir or a book like detailing like my personal experiences in both of my books. There's maybe six, five, six, seven pages that kind of that uh, tell a little bit of the book's theme through part of my story. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, I do not, you know, uh, I would not want to sit there and, and think that people would want to read a book about my life. Right. But they're both about something that you practice, right? Yes. So for these books here, like both ideas started in actually in grad school in 2010. Um, one was an article. It was actually um, a guy um, from Columbia named Bill Dershwitz, who is a professor at Yale. Um, he came and gave a talk at West Point called Solitude and Leadership, turned it into an essay. I read the essay and was like, this is brilliant. I actually reached out to him and said, hey, um, this is phenomenal. I've heard from a lot of people who I've shared your article with. And, and we all agree you should write a book on this topic. And he came back to me and was like, "Hey, I'm already writing a book on something else." Blah blah blah. So if you want to, if you want to read that book, you should write it. <laughs> so <laughs> challenge accepted, Bill. Um, you know, but uh, but again, I had to find an amazing co-author, to, you know, to be able to you know to pull it together. But um, and then leadership is relationship was one of my the name of the title of one of my grad school papers in 2010. But so these are th- both things that I've lived and I've and I've really like experienced myself. So I'm passionate about them, Mm -hmm. but also like in talking to lots of people and doing lots of research, I realized like there's a chance to make a unique contribution here to the leadership space. And that was really the intent behind both books is to add some new perspective. Because the reality is, as you know, like there's, I forgot how many millions of books out there. There's a lot of books, you know, and like you can't sit there and and think that any one book is going to solve like all your problems. Like it's really about trying to help people become more educated about the holistic view on leadership and like, Hey, what role does solitude play? What role, like, how is it harder to think focus and reflect now in the information age than it used to be, yeah. um, leader relationships relationships, chapter one, relationships under siege. Like how has the information age made it harder to connect and to build relationships? We can quote unquote connect with more people, but are we actually building more meaningful relationships? No, we're not. Right. You know? And so like we're trying to like make timely contributions in the information age that says, Leadership um, should be evolving and and meandering a little bit with the times. And here's why, and and here are some of the things that uh, you know we would suggest. But neither book is very prescriptive on what to do. The first one is detailed on history and um and its storytelling, like 95% of it's storytelling, Mm -hmm. right? Second one is about 80% of it is storytelling, 85% of it. You know, but there are some books that kind of like get heavy on the you should do this, you should do that. And that's not what either book is, you know, so.
0: Yeah. Uh, you talk about like Eisenhower pre D-Day using, you know, solitude as, yeah. a, as a means to think about the invasion. Right? Totally.
1: I mean, yeah, there's lots of examples in the military, but, you know, less in business in the book is the book is, you know, a lot of historical profiles of people right yeah. from the 18 and 1900s, um, unknown stories to most people you know, about like how, you know, Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King Jr. You know, or, you know, Jane Goodall, how they use solitude. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's the whole idea is to try to like pull out, you know, some of their stories and examples and say, look, they did it. It worked for them and they're pretty, you know, respectable, phenomenal leaders. So hopefully this motivates and inspires you to want to do the same. Yeah.
0: I uh, know that a lot of people do like distance running as sort of creating salt, soli- you know, it's not yep. like Superman. Right. You don't have a fortress. Right. Of solitude. <laughs> right. Uh, and uh, I, I, it's so like I said, I'm a podcast addict myself. If yep. I'm not listening to something mm-hmm. and I'm not in conversation with somebody else, I feel like there's something missing that should yeah. be going on right. right now. Yeah. So when I run, which, uh, you know, been rare at times, yeah. but <laughs> hopefully more. Yeah. Uh, You know, I just turn on whatever I'm listening to and I go and I feel like, you know, maybe I'm part, I'm the third listener in the conversation on the podcast while I'm running. Yeah. And I get done with my run and I continue on my day, but it's not really like solitude. Right. And I live in, you know, the city. So if I, if I do get out into the wilderness, it's like with other people on a trip or whatever. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I like started swimming a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I got these, like, waterproof headphones. Yeah. <laughs> and I sat, I sat my phone at the edge of the of the pool. And by the time I got to the other end of the pool, yep. the Bluetooth doesn't go through the water. Yep. So I came back and then I just, like, uh, dumped my headphones off. Yep. And then I did, like, a 40-minute swim. Wow. And I uh, just started thinking about, like, you know, solving all of life's problems yep. and all of the world's problems at once yeah, in a 40 minute swim. A, and I'm like, oh, wow, that was actually
1: solitude. Yeah, exactly. So like what you just described right there is how a lot of people end up discovering is like something doesn't work or something goes down, right? Like you know, their, their phone doesn't connect to their, you know, to their car that they were listening to. Cause a lot of people, whether it be podcasts or whether it be music or talk radio, people got, oh, we have different right. you know things that we, that we do to often fill the airspace. But well, people um, think you're a weirdo if you yeah. drive with the, the car radio on right. alone. Right. right Totally. Like that's what I tell people all the time. I was, like, I was like, try it, like try Like when you drive from here to there, I'm just keeping it quiet. Cause at first you're just like, this is weird. This is awkward but once you kind of break through like the you know just like any kind like of run you break through that initial that first mile is so hard right like once you get going and you loosen up it gets it gets easier but what you just described is exactly it like why people love swimming often cycling right as well like mm-hmm. um but you know because most people do run with here with your in right and whether that be music or whether that be podcasting or audio books um i encourage like people to really use that time for thinking you know yeah. um and and like you said it's amazing how much you can run through your head because if you think about what's going on, right, you're basically, if your brain is, you know, billions of neurological, you know, synapses, you're feeding that all day long with what you listen to, the work you're doing, the thinking you're doing, the conversations you're having, all the stimulation, all the input is coming into your brain and it's firing. Well, what happens now when there's not inputs? Like, I mean, I don't know enough, I know just enough of the neuroscience to be dangerous, but like our brains, like, fundamentally are doing different things. And even if you just like go in there with no intention, you're just like, I'm going to think about nothing. Your brain will take you someplace within like a minute, Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, you know, this is the whole challenge around mindfulness and around like being present. Like if you do nothing else, but focus on your breathing in and out, in and out, like most people can only do that for about two to three minutes and, the, and their mind starts racing. Right? Yeah. Even people who are really good at meditation. So it's just the challenge of bringing some of this into our lives. And I think that beyond like where our brain goes, I think it gives us a sense of peace of like, wow, I'm not having to pay attention to something else right now, mm-hmm. right? And and I, I think that rest is is essential, you know, for us to be our, you know, the best that we possibly can. And I'm not suggesting people be Henry David Thoreau and, you know, go live in the mountains and all that, but I do think that we gotta find periods of time, even if it's like five minutes between one meeting and the next, right? Of like, literally, like I'll do this sometimes, like I'll just take two minutes, right? And I'll just sit there and just like close my eyes, and just like breathe in and out, right? And think about nothing. And it's almost like, you know, like a hard reset. You know what I mean? Between, between one meeting and the next meeting. And, and, and it's not perfect, but it certainly is better than going like literally close one zoom and then immediately going over and clicking the next one and pulling that up. Zoom has a button that says leave and join. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> like, that's like, oh, man, that just makes me shiver. <laughs> I don't even know about that. But, like, I don't want to know about it. And, like, that's the whole thing is, like, I, I, when, and I just feel off-centered when I go and I know, like, people like you, like, in your line of work, like like you often do lately, like, well, yep, yeah, right on to the next thing, right, right on to the next people thing. People actually will say over Zoom, hey, right. I, I need a bio break.
0: Mm-hmm. When, like, when have you ever... Been working with another adult who asks to go to the bathroom, bathroom, right? You know, like uh, like Red from
1: Shawshank, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's that's exactly it. I mean, and and these these are the things that we laugh and joke about them. But I think the the while it is for doing it for maybe a couple of years is like not good. It's maybe not disastrous. Like, what's the effect of that if we're doing that still in a decade? Yeah, you know what I mean. So. I uh, I was on the elevator
0: in my building, and there was a little girl who was probably four or five years old, and uh, she she said, "Dad, why is the man not wearing a mask? Because that's all she knows, right? Right? Yep. So you know, you think like the two of us have forty-ish right. years to reflect on, and you know, more to come. But for uh, for kids, it's it's a larger portion of their overall life. Yes." You know, because it's been half that little girl's life. Yep. And, you know, I think that brings us to like your next book, yep. which is, you know, talking about the digital age. And, and it, you know, I know this is like a very parental topic, yeah. but it's also the stuff we've been talking about with work and, and social connection relationships, too.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, relations. So, number one thing, going back to positive psychology research shows number one predictor and driver of life satisfaction is the quality of a person's relationships in their life with family, with friends, with teammates, with coworkers. So that's important to know, right? That we over hedge and we over assess how happy success, money, houses, cars, clothes, all that kind of, like, I'll think all things like marketing, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, right? Like we have been conditioned to think that those things will make you happy. And we know for a fact that they don't. Right. <laughs> um, and so like then it goes into, okay, well, what does make us happy? Well, quality of our relationships. Awesome. Except that every one of us and every person that we know and interact with is very complicated, <laughs> right? We've all got our own backgrounds. We've got our own opinions. We have our own, you name it, religions, mindsets on things, um, fears, insecurities, like the list goes on. You know, some people are introverted, extroverted, like some people love conflict. Some people hate it. Like we are all very different. And for me, that's where this goes is that if only it was that easy to be good at relationships, because we'd all be a heck of a lot happier, um, if it was. And, yeah. you know, I don't know what the number is, but like when you think about stress in in your life, um, you know, I think it varies somewhere between 25 and 75% of stress is relational stress, right? You know, with, um, a spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, kids, parents, um, siblings, friends, coworkers, right? Like, yeah the the relationship friction or stress that that emerges in life is inevitable and that can that can bring you really down right or it can lift you up when you push through that or you do something amazing with people right it's the idea of winning an an individual state title versus a team state title like like doing it with the team is just way better because you're doing it in celebration with all these other people right you know and so relationships are so important And And it's also giving up a piece of control. Totally. If you win an individual
0: sport, it's all you, it's your coaches too and your family and everything, but it's all on you. Right. If I, if I, you know, if the clock's winding down in a hockey game and I have the option to shoot or pass, Mm -hmm. if I pass, then I'm putting the outcome of the game on somebody else's stick. Right. Uh, Yeah. So
1: yeah, totally. So yeah, just go back to it as I think that like, Really, you know, so relationships are hard, they're very important, but they're very hard. It's like keep going back to this notion that if you're in a leadership role, you have to be intentional about getting to know the people you lead. Um, I think that in general within organizations, organizations that have stronger, closer knit, you know, um, relationships will be better because, like, there's camaraderie there. There's, I care about the people that I'm doing this mission with. Um, and I think the challenge we see is that a lot of across the workplace, um, have. You know, companies and organizations and businesses and government, like they become more transactional, right? The turnover is higher. It used to be like, you know, people would work for two organizations in their whole life. Now it's like eight or 10 or 12 or something like that. Um. So there's just, it's more transactional and people are more likely to, you know, to churn or go somewhere else. And so very often people don't forge those relationships because relationships takes time. Um. But going back to it, relationships are also hard because there's going to be complexity there. So, I mean, again, I could wax poetic on this stuff all day, but like the bottom line is that, you know, relationships are very important and they're very difficult. So the last part there is you've got to have a strategy. You've got to have a game plan with how are you going to get better at building relationships as a leader and just as a person in life. Um, and you have to have the recognition and the realization that, like, where are you going to see people in person? Where are you going to sacrifice and say, no, no, this is a, this is a weekend. We need to do it together in person. This is 0% virtual, right? <laughs> like, yeah. we're going to go and we're going to go hike together, go play golf together, go do something together. And, and again, for lots of people, you know, who are hard chargers, type A's, um, relationship building is not efficient. And what I mean by that is like, I remember talking to Bob McDonald about this, former CEO of Procter and Gamble, former secretary of the VA. It's like, when you're spending time, like, like there and you're really engaged with people and you're not checking your phone every half, you know, every, you know, 20 minutes or something like that or going out to take a call, but you're really there and you have a two and a half hour dinner with someone or you have a four and a half hour golf round with someone. Right. Like think of all the stuff you could be getting done. And people who are very like task oriented are very much like I could be getting that done and this done and that done. And like, and all this work is piling up and they often get a sense of anxiety or stress because they're like, like I could be doing this work. You know, relationship building is not efficient. It's an investment in a long-term strategy of like, over the long run in life, like if this relationship continues to grow and flourish, it will open all kinds of doors, but also it's to make me happy yeah. like when that person succeeds or does something great, then I feel like I'm a part of that, you know, and so relationships are, you know, essential to our happiness, but also to our long term success if we're playing the long game if we take the long view. I just think increasingly people take the short view, right? And they're like, well, you're not, you're not helping me out fast enough, so I'm going to go find another friend. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm going to go find another business partner or someone else to work with. You have to take the long view. Yeah. Well, a lot of times that stuff
0: like it causes great anxiety, but it still works out. If you do a four-hour dinner with somebody, there's a lot you could get done at your computer in four yeah. hours. But when you get home, like, guess what? You, there's maybe some stuff you didn't have to do yep. or some stuff that totally. wasn't actually that and urgent and, right. and, and, you know, spending time with that person probably better served you. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Uh, so I asked you, how do you write a book? How do you start a school? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh boy. So my, my, my analogy and my phrase around starting a school is, um, it's every bit as as heavy of a lift as you might imagine. Okay, and then I immediately follow that up optimistically with, you know, but lifting heavy is how you get strong. Um, you know, like we've we've really you know built this with a lot of people who have been lifting heavy for five years. But um, you know, in summary, our big focus you know is centered around like how do we how do we approach education you know, in a different way. And I'm not gonna, I'm not sitting here. I'm not going to be like you know focus on like what I see as the flaws or the issues or the challenges within like the standard K through 12 model. Um, but I'll, I'll sum it by saying like that our big focus is on character, leadership and resilience, right? And so how do we intentionally build better people? Um, and part of that means you have to de-escalate the importance of academics, right? And sports and the arts, right? The three A's, you know, academics, athletics and the arts. And all those are very important, but they are not the end all be all, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, and, and so like your sports program should serve the point of helping to make your kids, your students better, i.e. better character, more resilient and, and give them leadership opportunities. Um, to me, that's where my mind goes on, on a lot of it, where if it becomes like, we're going to build programs, we, we need to win state titles. We need to send kids to division one and all that kind of stuff. Like, like that's, that's missing the boat in my book, you know? Um, even though I played division one and like, I love sports and, and I see the power in it. Right. Um, you know, we, so we have a model like centered around intercession. So two weeks, twice a year, we go out often into nature and like, we, you know, take kids on hikes and we do that kind of stuff. Right. We go do volunteer service projects. Um, like we were in the Appalachia, you know, part of Kentucky, like working to do some service projects, you know, over spring break. Um, that's our spring break is like, we take two week intercession and we go out and we do these things. Um, you know, Mr. Karen leads like the hike through like the UR, you know, with like these, you know, these, you know, 16 year olds who have never like, been out in nature for more than like yeah, a yeah. day.
0: Yeah. Well no. I'm
1: I'm thirty seven and I yeah. already know Doug and yeah.
0: I, I'll go hike through the Urari yeah. or I would I would love to hike yeah. through the Urari with yes. him and learn more yeah. stuff.
1: Totally, and like, and, and so we try to like make kids be aware of you know, how fortunate they are to have this like different model. But yeah. you know, going back to the how do you start the school? I mean, like anything, right? It's shoving the ship off the shore, and it's the you got to do the, the admin work, you got to do like the file of paperwork and the five hundred one c three paperwork, and build the board of directors, and you got to find the school building that's going to get uh, approved from a you know like a safety standpoint. There's all these like admin and legal hoops that you have to clear. Going back to your question earlier of like you've got to want it bad enough to do that work. And so like, I did a lot of that work in 2017 when we were getting it off the ground. Um, but then like the, the bulk of the work was done by really Francis Glatz. Um, my wife who was a second, you know, in support. Like they basically were pro bono principals and teachers, you know, in those early years, we had like two students and then we had like four students. I mean, we were super, I mean, we started like, you know, now we're like 35 students and, and growing, but like, you know, cause parents are, they have to trust you with their kids you know, to, and that's like a big thing. And if you don't, if you're not established enough, you don't have the credibility with a lot of them, they, they, they won't make that decision. But, um, but yeah, so it's, it's the admin side, but then really it's part of it is like the convincing, you know, funders and families to get behind the model, They're like this model that's different, you know, service character and leadership and letting kids know that, Hey, like, yeah, we care. If you want to go to college, great. If you don't like, you know, then like that's, you're not gonna be any less of a citizen in our eyes, you know, at father right. Cappadano high, right? We want to help you be a person grounded in your faith, who knows how to serve others, who can be resilient in the face of diversity, who can be a good person of character and has leadership capacity that you can see yourself growing into. Right. And when you think about that is our model, the academics, the athletics, the arts, um, all that stuff, it supports the broader development of the whole child. Um, and to me, of course I'm biased. Like when I hear like the positioning of that and I hear like it laid out like that, I'm like, yeah, like why wouldn't you want that for your kid? But the reality is a lot of people have been conditioned to think that no, the the purpose of high school is very much centered on getting my kid into college and AP tests, you know, and SATs and ACTs and all that stuff that I think um, it's pretty, it's becoming pretty clear that those are like relatively arbitrary in terms of Predicting your success later in life. Now, there was a period of time in our history where those things, I think, were really big predictors. And whether you went to college, like, at age 18 or 19 was a big predictor in terms of how successful you'd be. I think the, the, I think a lot of those, those things are changing with the access to the information age and and kids' ability to build stuff and start, like, starting a business if you want at age 12 or 13. Like, there's like all these tools at your fingertips right now that I think are starting to change the game. And more and more people, you know, are realizing like, oh, maybe a different way is possible. Yeah.
0: Uh, You know, I mean, you know, Nate pretty well uh, and, you know, known him for a long time. And uh, I'm more of the structured learner where I had to go to college and university and grad school and all that kind of stuff. And he's uh, like a pure autodidact. Right. Where he just figures out what he wants to know, goes, learns it and doesn't need a certificate or anything. And, 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 you know, the stuff that he builds and just as
1: productive, probably far more productive than your average yeah. college grad. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the challenge, right? It's like that like you gotta figure out your way. Some people need that structure. They need that, like right. Yeah, I don't want my no no offense to a doc, like, I don't want a doctor like who's never been through like and gone through surgeries to cut my knee open, right? Like right. there's certain roles and certain jobs I think where the training and the certification and the undergrad and the higher ed and all that is very important, right? And it always will be. But I think there's a lot of questions around, the. Um, well, if you're going to higher ed and you don't have that specific end state, like maybe it's better to go later on when you know what you want to be or you know what you want to do. And like this mindset of like, you know, hey, like the pipeline is 18 years old off the college and like and the, you figure out by age 22, I think it's like 90% of like Fortune 1000 CEOs basically say like college graduates are not ready to work in my company. Well, of course not because they, they spend four years in college, you know, often just like taking classes and partying. You know, but taking classes that are not specifically relevant to your line of work. Right. So there's, right. There's this whole period of like, like knowing maybe it's better to like get a little bit of life experience, get into the military, go do whatever, you know, age 18 to 23, 24 and then start college a little bit later. Right. And so I think we just have to open the aperture on what does that journey look like for the average kid? And at Cappadano, our model is really to let them know that you can, you know, you can, you can go a different way. Right. And by the way, we're going to celebrate that. You know, but our goal here as our mission statement is to develop resilient leaders armed with the clarity and courage to pursue God's purpose for their life. Right. So it's really about trying to help them establish that clarity and then have the conviction that they need. Right. To, you know, to pursue that plan. Yeah. Father Cappadano, uh, I had to look this up, you know,
0: but one of the nine chaplains to ever receive the Medal of Honor. Yep. Totally. So it has that you know, faith-based
1: element to your school, but also service-based element. Exactly. Yeah. And we, he really is kind of like the, he's like the brand, you know, our our team nickname is the Grunts. Yeah. You know, he, he was known as the Grunt Padre, right? Because he would be out there, like most chaplains would be like in the rear, kind of like, hey, I'll talk to whoever. Like he'd be like jumping on the Huey, right? And going into the firefight, yeah. right? You know, being there dying over, praying, you know, praying over dying Marines and, you know, being there to like, help out, provide medical support, do whatever he could, you know, so that's kind of like the service mentality and resiliency that we try to develop in our students, like in our name. So, yeah, no gun. Nope. Just out there (laughs) making it happen. I
0: I would feel naked, but (laughs) I'm not a priest. (laughs) Yes, sir. Uh, I know we're up against time, but there's one question we ask everybody who comes on the show
1: and that's who are you today? If you never served, Whew, yeah. I mean, I think today if I, you know, um, and obviously I don't know, right. But uh I, I think I probably am a doctor. You know, I probably if I didn't go the route of the military academy and going into the army and all that, um, you know, I probably am a doctor because like that was always in my mindset of like, hey, you know, how can I help and, and, and learn to be the person who can help people out and You know, I think that that's probably the route I would have gone, Yeah. you know, Um, but it's hard to know. And I guess that's kind of the beauty of life, right, of like the what ifs, you know. Um, And for me, I'm happy I don't have that what if. I'm glad that I pursued the path that I have. Like I think most veterans feel that way. Not all, but I think most. Um, But I definitely would not be um, the entrepreneur that I am. I would not be the probably the risk taker that I am, you know, going out and forging this new kind of like, you know, life on land, yeah. I, I don't think, you know, that um, I would be anywhere close to the, you know, the capacity to take on new and, and, and challenging tasks like I am now because of the military. The military has kind of just given me a, an, a sense of uh, joy around the chaos and around the, the stress. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of welcome it in the adversity. And once you've made it through some of that in the military, you, you kind of take that confidence and that mindset to you with, with you wherever you go you know so i don't think i would be nearly as equipped or armed you know to do some of the things that i've done you know without the military yeah nice well you're an
0: author you're an educator entrepreneur philanthropist everything so
1: a little bit of all yeah. so but uh that's good man really appreciate it awesome conversation yeah long, you know, long, the long form podcast, podcaster you know our are always great because they can there's so much like flexibility in terms of the directions to go and all that but um yeah really great discussion
0: yeah thanks for inviting me Definitely. out too in person is 100 times better yes. than of course you know we rag on zoom yeah. if i if i'm talking to someone who lives in washington yeah. state it's probably going to be over zoom yeah but uh <laughs> i'm glad that we could make it happen. yeah
1: awesome yeah. thanks matt
0: thanks for tuning into this episode of thank you now what a podcast about life after service be on the lookout for Mike on a farm, teaching at a high school, leading an endurance event, or any of all kinds of other activities and places that you're sure to find him. In fact, we loaded up this episode's show notes, so check that RSS feed for a full list of what Mike has going on. Make sure you go sign up for Team Red, White, and Blue. Uh, Ben and I did today, and we'd encourage you to consider a donation If you're new to our show, please check us out on our website, thankyounowwhat.com. You can check out our Patreon, become a subscriber there maybe, patreon.com slash thankyounowwhat, and Instagram, unsurprisingly, at thankyounowwhat. As always, thanks for listening to us. Go ahead and subscribe. Hit that button in your podcast player. Maybe enable auto-downloads. It's great. Rate. Give us five stars. Review. After you give us five stars, write something nice about us. Follow, mostly on Instagram, but uh, Patreon, we love you even more. Lastly, share by word of mouth. Tell all your friends and drop it in a text, maybe, uh, to that friend group. Um, As we say, thanks for listening. Subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on Thank You, Now What?